Our New Testament passage today comes from the book of Ephesians, a letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 3, verses, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 2, as well as 14 to 21. Let us center our hearts on the word that God is speaking to us today. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Recently, I started rereading the classic little book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you don't know this book, these letters are written in the voice of a demon, a devil, Screwtape, who is a very diligent, respected minion high up in the bureaucratic offices of Satan. Screwtape is diligently trying to tutor his nephew, Wormwood, who is overseeing his first human patient. Wormwood is working hard to lure this human patient to the side of our father, that is, Satan. Spoiler alert, ultimately, Wormwood loses out to the enemy, that is, God. Each letter begins, Dear Wormwood, and Screwtape alternately praises or chastises his young prodigy for his work on his human patient. While some of Lewis's rhetoric is dated and his ideas about relationships, particularly women, don't really hold up as much now, I do appreciate throughout Lewis's work the fascinating contrast he draws between evil and good. For Lewis, sin and evil always lead to the more boring, the more obvious choice that a human could make. For Lewis, it always is the more self-involved, the less interesting option. Of course, humans want to choose the more sinful option. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to believe that they're right, or they are more important, or that they deserve the easy out? For Lewis, sin consistently tempts us towards the easier decision, the less resistant or challenging choice. And then, over time, what happens is sin allows our moral muscles to atrophy. We get weaker and weaker the more sinful we are. Good, on the other hand, is about growing, about expanding, discovering, exploring, Good is about flourishing, 
about pushing yourself in new ways and discovering what strength and hope, virtue and love look like in unexpected places. Lewis plays this out throughout the Screwtape letters. Here is one letter that Screwtape writes to Wormwood about prayer and the church. Wormwood's human patient is a new convert to Christianity. He's in the prime of his life and just deciding to commit to go to church for the first time. And just remember, for Screwtape, the enemy is God and our father, our, our side, is Satan. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now firmly with us. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the true church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle that makes our boldest tempters quite uneasy. But fortunately, that church is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic building on the new housing estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy that neither of them fully understands, and one shabby little book containing the texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When your human gets to his pew and looks around, he sees the selection of neighbors he's been able to avoid thus far. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make your human's mind flit to and fro for the, from the grand expression of the body of Christ and then the actual faces in the next pew. You see, at his present stage, your patient has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual. His mind is full of noble images. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first weeks as a churchman. Handle him properly. He has not been with the enemy long enough to have anything like real humility yet. At bottom, he still believes he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these commonplace neighbors at all. The great thing is to keep thrusting his virtue and benevolence out to some remote place, to people he does not know, and to direct his malice and annoyance to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day. Let his annoyance and malice become the real thing, and his benevolence become something largely imaginary. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can, but be careful. Prayer is an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Screwtape is on to something, and that's probably why this book continues to speak to us. We all have heard about the buffering effect of our modern, uh, modern world today, how we can get up and go to bed without actually needing to run into anyone with whom we disagree, with anyone who challenges us. We've probably all heard about the big sort or about our social media bubbles 
about the way modern conveniences inoculate us against challenges to our perspective, to our labels, to our hierarchies, to our opinions. This happens in worship as well. There are many voices in our head and in our world that tell us not to take worship too seriously. Not to take it too seriously unless it makes us feel good about ourselves. Many voices tell us that what we do here, what we say, how we gather, what we profess, that all of this doesn't really matter. It's just a bunch of rote routines. No need to take it seriously. No need to take it too much to heart. We might listen to the prayer from Ephesians today and enjoy the words, the sweeping, soaring language. We might hear the psalm and like to hearing the abundance of images, all the ways that kind of echoes and rhymes and reminds us of other images we like in Scripture. But ultimately, we might not want to take any of it too seriously. Like Wormwood's human patient, we might be tempted to hear this Ephesians prayer, the one that we are heard today. We might just want to hear it as mere words. It's something that doesn't really have anything to do with us. We might see worship as a noble thing that we do to feel good about ourselves once a week. We might see community as something we participate in for about 90 minutes each week. We might see all of this as an occasion to make us feel noble and righteous for a few minutes, a couple times a month, and then we're done. That is what Screwtape is hoping for. Because if we come to worship each week, coming expecting to always feel that warm and fuzzy, noble feeling, well, then we will be sorely disappointed. Because there will be a day when we wake up and we do not want to worship God. We don't want to come to a sacred place for a little while. We'll drag ourselves to the sanctuary. We'll harumph at the prayers. We'll roll our eyes at the hymn, that shabby book with old words and small print, as screw tape describes it. We'll slump against the pew. We'll wonder what is the point of any of this. This will happen. Perhaps it is happening right now. I will not ask. Don't worry. No show of hands. At some, time, the things, at some time, the things we say in worship, the people we sit next to, the songs we hear, it will all just be like we're be feeling like we're in a fog, a cloud of annoyance and worries and doubts that gnaw away at us. Everything that is about faith, everything that's tangible about God will seem to be beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. And then the choice becomes for us, as it will for Wormwood's human, what happens next? After we look around and we start to see the reality in our life of faith, after the noble images in our minds start to get a bit tarnished by real people and real actions and the real church as it exists in the world today, what do we do then? Perhaps it is helpful to remember that the scripture, any scripture, and the scripture that we have heard today from Ephesians and the Psalms, these were not written high up in some tower, removed from the world, separate from people and the muck and mire of current events. 
Scripture was written and passed along in the midst of everyday life, written to speak to the struggles that ordinary people experienced when they had to approach their neighbors, their families, their leaders, their own hearts. For example, our Ephesians passage is embedded in what was arguably the conflict of the early church. That is, it was written during a century when there was great tension between the Jewish followers of Christ, of Jesus, and the Gentile or non-Jewish followers of Christ Jesus. The main conflict for many leaders of the early church was, who gets to join this movement? What are the prerequisites for becoming a believing member of our community? These questions tore through congregations and families. Who is in? Who is out? Who can we count as worthy and righteous? These questions weren't just about some personal internal life of faith. They were about the outward life of the community, about the community's engagement with the world. This was the challenge of the early church. And here in the letter of Ephesians and throughout the scriptures, Paul takes a stand. Paul writes, This is the reason that I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. And then Paul goes on with some eloquently beautiful poetic words, pouring out gratitude to God for this promise that has been extended to the Gentiles. Paul is taking a stand here. He is not just uttering high and holy words focused on sounding good with lofty prayers. Here he is taking a stand on the side of God's expanding, growing, flourishing grace. He is saying that this word is for Gentiles too, for those who've been considered outside the borders of the chosen tribe. He is saying that there is a place for non-Jews in this community and that this is the reason to fall on the knees before the Lord of heaven and earth. This prayer we hear isn't just about words on a page. This prayer is making a radical statement about what God is doing here and now. It's trying to shake something loose in our way of seeing the world. These words are not written in a cozy haze of holy thoughts. They were written in the real world. They were written from a jail cell. Paul is sharing a gospel and taking a stand, and it costs him. This good news challenges authorities, challenges the status quo. This gospel resists accepting the world as it is, and instead describes the world as it could be, indeed, as it ought to be. You don't end up in jail if you're only trying to make people feel good for a few moments a week. Paul is writing a letter and sharing a prayer that is meant to challenge things, challenge the early church, challenge society, challenge the hearer's own life. These words of confrontation, of mind-boggling grace and border-busting love, with these words, Paul declares, these words are for you, and they have landed me in jail, and for this I still celebrate the Lord. For this is the reason because I believe that God's power is intended for more than just us, 
because I believe that God's abundance is for Gentiles as well as Jews, because I believe and declare that God's love and compassion knows no limits, that our powerful spirit is never arrested by the powers that be, but instead does abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. This prayer from Ephesians is a poetic prayer, but it is so much more. It is a prayer that is intended to change our lives. This is a prayer about the radical flourishing of God, which happens in the unseen, unsexy places of our lives, down in the roots and foundations, down in the dirt and the darkness, the places that are hidden from sight. This is a prayer that isn't supposed to make us just feel good or sound good. It's supposed to change our entire way of seeing the world. Last week in his sermon, Ellick asked, what happens if we see the world with the eyes of compassion? And to add to that, what happens if we see the world as the place where God is alive and ready to surprise us with God's height and depth and length and breadth? How will we start to get up in the morning if we believe that God is doing something with us right here and right now? How do we approach the person in the pew, in the street, on the news, the person in power, the person who's being silenced? How do we approach all of these people if we believe that in our deepest core, we are being given strength by Christ himself? These words of scripture and worship are not supposed to make us feel good They're supposed to transform us. As Lewis writes him, Screwtape wants us to take for granted what we're doing and saying in our worship. He doesn't want us to take any of this too seriously. Screwtape wants us to go through the motions, to hold on to some lofty ideal that isn't really grounded in reality. And yet when we come to worship, When we hear words like the psalm and this Ephesians prayer, maybe we can remember again the scraps and pieces of people's faith which have been lived out and sung and shared at great penalty, at great cost, across thousands of years. These words do not come to us as simple, clean, lofty testaments of faith. They come to us from prisons and caves, from women and men who've been enslaved and beaten and exiled and jailed. These words come to us because the Spirit is alive in the dim work of rooting and grounding, and even in the dark, Christ is able to accomplish abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. I want to finish up this sermon with a spiritual exercise for your week. I know, we all know, that some images of God are hard for us to grasp and some are more accessible than others. The good news is that the Bible is full of images of God, not just one. And so, in a few minutes, I'm going to encourage you to look at the second hymn we're singing today, Source and Sovereign, Rock and Cloud. This hymn is written with a mind towards God's abundant richness, written using many different terms and descriptions of God. I want to encourage you to take the words of this hymn seriously, to take them to heart. I'm going to encourage you to look more closely at each name of God in this hymn. 
See which one stands out to you. Choose one. Take it with you into your week. See how it travels with you. See what it makes you notice, what it reveals, what it helps you understand, what questions it brings up. See how it shapes your vision, the way you look at the news, the weather, your neighbor, the traffic, your to-do list, how you look at the world and how you look at your own heart. And if you want, you can email me and let me know what your word is and what you noticed. So let's take a few minutes now. I mean, actually, right now, turn to hymn 11 and just look at, look at that hymn. Read it through. We'll sing it in a few minutes. Find a word that stands out to you, an image, and just hold it in your heart. There is no right or wrong answer here. Friends, we worship a God who keeps trying to get our attention, who keeps trying to get us to take seriously the work and the joy of this creation in which we live, this world in which we all dwell and live and move and have our being. God is here. And so I pray that you will find and carry forth an image that fills you with the fullness of God in some mysterious way. May we all defy the lulling effect of life. May we each take these words of worship seriously. May we take them to heart. May we let them change us. And may we let them, through the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, change our world. Let us pray. Lord, you come to us in many names, and one name is above them all, Christ Jesus. And Jesus does not stand off to the side, but joins us in the mess of this world, O Lord. And so we give you thanks, and we commit our lives once again to seeking your face in surprising ways among us, here and now. In your holy name we pray. Amen.